I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. We are back. Today's guest is Dr. Tracy Becker. She is a postdoctoral researcher at the Southwest Research Institute, and she's working on UV observations of solar system objects. Welcome, Tracy. Hi. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, tell us about what it is that you do. Uh, well, as you said, uh, I'm a planetary scientist, so I study um, pretty much a lot of objects in the solar system, uh, mostly in the ultraviolet wavelengths. So I have worked on uh, studying Saturn's rings using the Cassini spacecraft. I'm currently focused mostly on one of Jupiter's moons, Europa, and learning as much as I can about that object. And also we've looked at some asteroids in the UV as well. And why ultraviolet? Oh, that's a good question. So the ultraviolet um, is not as often used. It's harder to use because you can't really use telescopes on the Earth to study objects in the UV because we have this wonderful atmosphere that blocks the sun's ultraviolet light from getting in, uh, which is generally good except for when you want to observe objects in the UV, which means uh, that that light is also being blocked. So you really need a space-based telescope uh, like the Hubble Space Telescope or these instruments that are on these missions that go to the objects. But the UV um, can do a lot for us. And one of the main things it does is um, in the visible and in the infrared, we typically can learn a lot about an object. We look at their spectra. And that spectra can actually tell us a little bit about the composition, but sometimes it can be ambiguous. So having the ultraviolet light in addition to the other light helps us uh, distinguish what the composition is. And um, there's also been a lot of other great uses for it too. For example, um, the, the plumes of Europa that were discovered the first time, nominally discovered, uh, we believe, was using uh, auroral emissions in the UV. So there are a lot of different kind of applications that you can have with the UV that give us different pieces of information. And is it, with, with UV, it's the like how the whatever it is that you're studying reacts to UV light as opposed to how it reacts to our normal spectrum versus infrared? Is that what the difference is, the data that you're looking at? Yeah, essentially. So what I mostly do is reflect it uh, reflectance spectroscopy. So you're really looking at how the sunlight bounces off of an asteroid or an object like Europa, a, a moon or a planet. And you're you're looking at how that the sunlight, which does give off light in the UV, the visible infrared, how that bounces off of the object and then what kind of parts of it get absorbed and what parts get reflected. And so in the visible, um, what gets reflected if you see something that's red, it's because it's reflected the red light off of it. Um, and so in the ultraviolet, it's doing the same thing. Our eyes just don't see it as a color, but it's the same idea. So you're learning something about the actual composition uh, based on what gets reflected and what doesn't. So you said you were able to do this with Cassini? Yeah, so Cassini, I did something quite different, but they um, they do look at all of the moons of of uh, Saturn with Cassini ultraviolet, uh, the, the UVIS instrument on Cassini. But what I did was actually something quite different, which was look at Saturn's rings um, by looking at a star in the background in the ultraviolet and watching as the rings pass in front of the star. And when it did that, it blocks out some of the starlight. So you can kind of imagine those days when you're driving down a highway with like a lot of trees and everything, and it kind of blocks out the sun here and there, and you get patches of light shining through. That's kind of what we do with the with the rings, because you know if you're seeing lots of sunlight, there aren't that many trees. But if you're, the sunlight's completely blocked, it's like a forest, and the trees are blocking everything. So it's kind of the same way with the rings. You can tell how many particles there are, what the particle density is uh, in the rings based on how much starlight, background starlight, gets blocked. And then the 
other cool thing, which is what I really mostly did with it, was um, when the light comes past these small little particles that make up Saturn's rings. So Saturn's rings are basically made up of a bunch of tiny uh, little dust water ice particles all the way up to boulder house-sized objects that all are going around Saturn together. And some of the small particles can diffract light. So the same... So you can basically use how much light gets diffracted uh, to say something about what the particle sizes were in the ring. So how much light actually gets scattered into our detector uh, tells us something about the rings. And when I'm saying scattering, I'm talking about um, the same concept of when you are in the movie theater and you look up at a at the projector light and suddenly you can see all this dust floating in that bright light. That's those dust particles actually diffracting light into your eye. So we use that same technique and basically how much light gets diffracted in that way uh, tells us what those particle sizes were. Did you ever get any results that were surprising? Um, one of the cool things that I'm kind of just finishing up working on, it's not necessarily surprising, but it's kind of just really um, a nice um, way to confirm what we would expect in a way is that um, in Saturn's F ring, which is this super complicated uh, ring that's a very narrow ring just outside of the main rings, what you usually think of as Saturn's rings, it's this skinny little ring that um, has all kinds of crazy stuff going on. So there's collisions, there's rocks being built up, ice ice boulders being built up, and then being destroyed. Um, there are moons nearby that kind of mess with the ring a lot. So it's this crazy, funny-looking ring that, if you look at images from NASA, that's super cool. Um, but I was, again, looking at just the ring as it passed uh, in front of the sun, actually, instead of just the background star. And we kept seeing these little... Um, bright spots instead of like I was saying before if this if the ring starts to go in front of the sun you'd expect a dip in the brightness of the sun because it's being blocked a little bit but just before it would block the sun we would see this increase in light and that was those particles kind of shining diffracting this light into our detector before it started actually blocking the sunlight and so what we noticed though was we were only really seeing this at the same time as when we looked at the images of the ring and there was a collision going on right at that same spot. So we kind of had this conclusion that these big collisions that happen in the ring are releasing a bunch of these tiny little particles that are then able to diffract the light and we can see it in these occultations that we did. I, all of this seems so sort of, I mean, it's fascinating, but it's also like, how did, how did you wind up st studying these things, like particles of a ring around Saturn? I mean, it seems, it seems fascinating and yet, sort of odd and, and so obscure and so yeah totally random <laughs> um well so when I got to graduate school at the University of Central Florida my advisor Josh Caldwell he uh had been part of the UVIS team that's the UV instrument on Cassini uh since pretty much since its inception and um that instrument was built out in at uh LASP in Colorado at the University of Colorado in Boulder and um we yeah, so he had seen this one really weird one, again, with the F ring going in front of the sun where there was this big, giant kind of extra amount of light. And we were like, well, that's funny. Um, but he, you know, then he was like, I'll wait for, I don't really know what to do with this. I'll wait to give this to a, a grad student that comes along. <laughs> Poor unsuspecting um, grad student, right? Yeah, but it was, um, it the, the rings itself, the reason why people are so interested in them is that they really tell us a lot about um, planet formation. So, the rings are kind of doing the same thing that the early solar system does, where you just have a bunch of kind of different sized particles all orbiting a central body. In this case, it's Saturn, but in the case of a solar system formation, it's the sun or the central star. And um, But 
in Saturn's rings, we do see um, complications and times where stuff come together and clump. We see small moonlets that can form these tiny little objects that start to clear out a path uh, the same way we believe planets form and clear out their kind of path in their orbit. And so it's kind of like our own small little laboratory of planet formation right here in our, in our own solar system. So that's kind of one of the main reasons people are, are interested in it. We still don't fully know how or when the rings formed, but we're hoping that with the end of Cassini, which is happening very soon, um, these last kind of orbits that they're getting are in the special trajectory, and that will really help us nail down the mass of the rings, and that will tell us a lot more about the this formation technique and, and how it's evolved since. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you about the how you felt about the end of Cassini. Um, is, and no, well, then, no, have, no, like, no, no, five no, 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 no. stop there because, like, the end of Cassini, I mean, you're just saying it's really exciting because you're going to get more data, but then also you know that you're not going to get any more data after that. I mean, how do you, yeah, do you plan that way, or do you're like, well, this is it, this is all we're gonna yeah, do? Yeah, so yeah, every, I mean, everyone's prepared. Uh, I think most people are really sad. Um, we had, uh, there, yeah, some of these people have been working on this mission since the 80s. Uh, Cassini launched in 1997, so it was being built in the 10 years at least before that, and then it uh, arrived at Saturn in 2004, and so some people who are, you know, in their 40s and 50s and 60s have made their a huge part of their career based on this mission, so it's a really big deal for them, I think. Um, for me, it's, it's sad, but it's exciting because we are getting this new data, and I'm uh, I've already kind of moved on to some of the other projects that I'm working on now. So uh, looking to the future with um, one of the missions I'm involved in now is the Europa Clipper mission, which is going to one of Jupiter's moons. Um, but yeah, of course, it's sad to lose Cassini, but it's a great way to lose it because it is doing these crazy new orbits instead of orbiting Saturn. Um, kind of along the plane. It was never always just along the plane, but it was pretty far out from Saturn. And now in these final orbits, it's crossing, it's going kind of up and over Saturn and crossing the ring plane between Saturn's atmosphere and the rings themselves. So it's actually interior to Saturn's main ring system. And so these new orbits are just so interesting and so complicated and they're going to get so much data that I don't know if they ever expected they were going to end it this way back, you know, 20 years ago. So it's it's a nice little hurrah for the if it's going to have to end, which it has to end because it's running out of fuel, it's a great way to do it. Um, I'll, I'll get back to Europe in a second because I'm curious or curious about that. But um, one more question about Cassini. Um, right, so you had mentioned that it needs to end because it's running out of fuel. Uh, is there any more, if it had more fuel, is there any more science that you can get out of it in terms of the what it's currently doing as opposed to the crazy orbits that it's going to do when it death kills spiral. itself. Yeah, in its, in its death spiral. Yeah, I mean, it's been there for 13 years collecting amazing data, and they've discovered so much about the ring system and the planet and the moons of, of Saturn. So if, if it had a lot more fuel, it would just keep doing more interesting science out there. So um, in Saturn system, there's a moon called Enceladus, and that's the little icy world, a small little guy that they flew by. And when they flew by it, they realized something interesting was going on. So they took another look and they realized there were um, basically cryovolcanism at the south pole of Enceladus. So it's spewing out little water ice particles and creating its own ring called the E-ring, 
which is this big kind of very, very um, sparsely populated ring, but but pretty large ring in itself. And it's it's basically created by the particles that are being spewed out of some sort of liquid water underneath uh, Enceladus's shell. So that was a pretty amazing discovery. And I think if we had more time with Cassini, we would do a lot more close flybys of that to really learn a little bit more there. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you're working on currently with Europa. Yeah, so Europa is uh, kind of the next big destination uh, for for NASA. There's several other missions going on too, but this is the one that obviously matters to me since I'm a part of it. Um, but I'm working with uh, my advisor is Kurt Rutherford, and he's the lead of the UV instrument for this mission, which is just called Europa UVS. And it is, um, you know, it's just still in its concept form. So the mission itself won't launch until... Uh, 2022, and it won't arrive to Europa until 2026. Um, and then it'll orbit Jupiter for a, th- a few years and make these kind of close flybys of of Europa. And it's called Europa Clipper is the mission name. And um, yeah, so it's really cool because I get to kind of... So Cassini, I came on late in the game. You know, it had been there already for many, many years. And it was cool to get all the data, but now I kind of see it from the beginning side and it's, it's even more exciting because you get to help decide, you know, what, what are we going to look at? How are we going to look at it? Uh, what's kind of the trajectory we're going to do and, and figure out what kind of, what kind of science we can get out of it. Are you, sorry, are you staring at numbers? Are you staring at pictures? How are you, what, how does this data come to you and how do you deal with it and process it? For Europa or for well, the Europa, Cassini ring stuff? Okay, so for Europa, there's no data yet. Uh, well, so we have plenty of data from the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, not plenty. We'd love to have more. But um, we get data from the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, um, in the UV at least. And there's some data from past spacecraft missions as well, like Galileo. And we look at um, that data to, to get our kind of basic idea of what we think uh, is there and where the interesting regions are to study. But right now what we're really doing is kind of all the actual just nitty gritty planning of what the instrument's going to do and how it's going to do it. So it's uh, my kind of role mostly has been um, the main mission itself kind of comes up with a plan of the trajectory. And then we look at that trajectory for each instrument. Each instrument takes that trajectory and tries to figure out, okay, is this trajectory going to work to get us the science that we feel we need to get? And so if there's any major problems with that trajectory, like let's say it doesn't fly over a really important area um, that's maybe only important to one instrument, not necessarily important to all the instruments, then that, you know, then that instrument team wants to be like, hey, 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 like, hold on. No, no, like, let's change it up a little bit. So it's kind of things like that, and it's it's things like worrying about how much um, data is going to be required to do all the observations that we hope we're going to be able to do. It's planning things like um, the same thing I was describing earlier with Cassini and Saturn's rings, where we watch a star go behind the rings. We do that with um, moons and planets as well, because as the star passes behind Europa, if um, it's kind of tenuous atmosphere that it has, we'll be able to see the atmosphere kind of block out that starlight at certain wavelengths, depending on what the composition of the atmosphere is. So we can kind of nail down what the atmosphere is like, how dense it is. And if there's a, if there's plumes on Europa, which we think there are, um, just like Enceladus had, then if we can put a star behind that, if we can fly by in such a way that we would see a stellar occultation of those plumes, 
we can see a lot about what those plumes are made out of and so therefore know a little bit more about the liquid ocean that's underneath Europa. I want to back up a little bit because I'm really curious about, um, you mentioned that you guys sort of decide what the science is that you're going to be doing on this, uh, uh, on these missions, right? How do you decide on that? <laughs> where do you even start? At that yeah, point? where do you even start with that? Um, I think you start at least with a mission like this, where it's not a discovery mission, where we we know a little bit more about Europa. Um, we you start with what we know already, so you start with um, the parts that are that we've studied and are still a mystery. So, for example, Europa has um, kind of it's it's known to be a water ice shell, but on the on one hemisphere, it kind of really looks just like water ice mostly. But on the other hemisphere, there's kind of this darker splotch right at kind of the the apex of that hemisphere. And so we don't know fully if that's from maybe material coming from Io. So Io has these sulfur volcanoes. It spews out material and creates uh, this kind of ring around Jupiter as well. And some of that material might be landing on Europa and causing that dark splotch um it could be uh something coming out of the interior of europa perhaps so that kind of what that composition is in that dark region is of interest to all the scientists um there are different kind of formations all across europa that we did see with galileo and so we see these ridges and these cracks and these other places and we want to look at those and see hey are these cracks that go deep enough to let maybe water from inside come out because then we can again study the water that's underneath uh, or is it some sort of tectonics happening on Europa? So what's kind of just all these questions that came from that first flyby of Europa where we were like, hey, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, what What's going on? So that's what, I think that's the main starting point. It's like, how do we answer some of these questions that are outstanding from the last time? What's your favorite part out of all of this? I mean, it sounds like some of it's really interesting in that, like, you get to see things that nobody's ever seen before, or you're working at data that nobody's looked at, or you're sort of on the end of this, like, if you're talking about Cassini, like, you get to see the end of something. Is there one part of it that stands out, or is sort of just, every time you look at it, you're like, oh, yeah, this is cool? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I, yeah, there's a lot of parts that are awesome. Um, I think being part of something that's like new and revolutionary and it's going to be the first time we really see Europa this way. That's super exciting. Um, but being part of Cassini was so cool too. The community of scientists that you get to work with and learn from um, and uh, yeah, just kind of figuring out new stuff is really what's cool. And then I, I would say my other kind of favorite part too is actually talking to people and kids about what I do and seeing if they get excited as well. And that's kind of one of my favorite parts too. When people make observations on Earth using um, uh, telescopes, right, they have to reserve time, they have to sort of propose um, to whoever controls that, that I want to do this type of experiment, and then uh, they kind of schedule it in. Do you guys do something similar as well with your UV observations, or is that um, kind of already set at the beginning of the mission, and then that's kind of it? We've done Hubble observations, so that's the same way as what you just said, where you have to ask for telescope time. Um, but for the instruments themselves, it's the team that's that won the proposal. So there was already a proposal process to get 
that instrument made by those people onto the mission. And so they oh, pretty much okay. control what um, what gets observed, how it gets observed. Then there's programs where you can bring on participating scientists where other scientists might be able to propose to kind of be a part of the team. Um, but I don't really know that much about that, actually. <laughs> okay. No, okay, that's a good distinction. I just didn't realize that you kind of your group bid or proposed that pretty much uh, yeah this particular science okay all right this launches in 2022 you said 2020 yeah. it arrives in 2026 correct so what are you doing in the meantime uh well that's yeah so that's only a part of what I'm working on uh that's only some of my time the rest of the time I get to spend looking at the Hubble data uh studying what we might want to find out more about on Europa, um, seeing what we can learn now, see if we can see other plumes so we know where to where to make a special um, pass by if we see a plume in a certain area. So the plumes, we believe we've detected plumes a few times, uh, not me personally, but scientists have seen what we think is um, a plume a couple times now. And so if we see him again and again, we'll start to really figure out maybe where we should definitely make sure we fly over. So one of the projects that I'm excited to work on is uh, some data we got from the Hubble Space Telescope back in April of, um, of an asteroid called Psyche. And an a- wait, wait, wait. There's an asteroid called Psyche? Yeah. I find that interesting. It's, it's a good name. And they also... Uh, there was a mission selected to go there. So it was recently selected, like within the last year, year and a half. And they're also just called Psyche. So Psyche is going to go to Psyche <laughs> and study its Psyche, I guess. <laughs> Say um, that three times fast. Right. <laughs> but it's a super cool place. It's, um, it's believed to be a metallic asteroid so they think it was the is the core of a differentiated asteroid so the same way the earth has a core a mantle and a crust uh, we think that some of the biggest asteroids were able to do that as well and then the asteroids all smash into each other in the beginning of the solar system and um, possibly stripped away the material that was the core uh, that was the mantle and the crust leaving just the core behind and so we want to go check out this world. Um, some of the, the artistic images that they have of, of what we might see when we get there is so, so cool because they picture like this, you know, uh, some sort of a crater being formed. So like an impact crater and then kind of the metallic uh, ejecta coming out and like maybe freezing. I don't know what exactly they're like depicting, but it's super cool looking. And so if you check out their imagery for the Psyche mission, it's... It's pretty awesome. And so they won't have a UV instrument on board. Uh, so our observations are the only kind of new, fresh observations of Psyche at those wavelengths. So it's kind of going to be complementary to whatever they figure out when they when they get there. Looking, I don't know whether it's backwards or forwards, but, but when you sort of look at what you do and what you study as a whole, like what gets you excited about this job or this kind of research and, and in terms of what you can learn from it or, or uh, whatever it is. What, how would you define or describe what gets you excited about it? Um, I think it is just that idea of, of being kind of a, an expert on a certain topic and, and, you know, just seeing 
learning something new about those objects and, and learning something maybe that no one else has ever known. So being the first to kind of discover something, uh, I think is just one of the more exciting parts. And like when you get new data, it's kind of just this like exciting moment of, you know, when, you know, you get excited to actually just process it and analyze it and, and see what you get out of it. It's kind of like opening up a, a Christmas present, but not <laughs> a Christmas not present as, of not starlight, a, right? Yeah. And certainly not as immediate of a reward because it takes a long time, but it's, you know, it's kind of that process of, of finding out something new that really no one has ever known or learned before. Do you spend most of your time behind a computer working on on algorithms or or sort of applications, or are you spending time with? I mean, how does what's your day like? What 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 are you doing on an average day if there is such a thing? Yeah, I'm a I'm a computer person. So there are some people who do a lot of like really cool stuff in these awesome laboratories. Some of them at Southwest Research Institute are super cool. Like you know, looking at ice and UV or designing experiments at UCF uh, in Central Florida, they had like a drop tower where they do experiments to see how things collide in, in kind of uh, low G environments by just dropping it and having the collisions happen while it's in free fall. So some people do really cool stuff like that. Um, I sit at a computer pretty much all day, uh, but it's still fun. It's mostly, com- yeah, writing computer simulations uh, for those for example, for uh, Europa and Hubble data, and so Psyche as well, we're really spending the time taking the images that come down from Hubble and processing them properly. So you have to uh, account for, you know, ins- the instrument and what lights, you know, what what constitutes noise and what's actually real signal from the asteroid, and then um, removing the sunlight from the image because you just want to see the you want to see the spectrum of the object itself or you want to see the image of the object itself and so you have to do a little bit of data processing before you can actually say anything about the results and so uh there that takes up a lot of time and then you can do these simulations for the um for the ring stuff that i was talking about earlier all of the ways that we determined anything about the particle sizes were using uh simulations that i had to write so it wasn't like you can just say oh we got this much light so guess the particles are one millimeter it was it was <laughs> if only a lot it were more. that simple it took me six years so it's 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 a long process um yeah so you what we were doing was writing a code that basically completely um replicated what the cassini spacecraft did what the starlight looked like and what the rings you know and then putting in a bunch of different possibilities for what the ring particle population looked like at that time and then run that kind of code a bunch of times and see for different particle populations and see um, which one matches the data the best. And so, you know, to do that, you also have to account properly for the for the optics, the physics of, of how the light would actually be diffracted. So, so it's a lot of um, math and physics that kind of go into our computer programs right. that then we use as simulations for what really happened. Do you have a, uh, a wish list of uh, solar system objects that you want to visit at some point, and we just sort of and have by visit, Mumu means hopping on a rocket ship. And, oh, uh, right, yes, physically <laughs> visit, but but more so like sending kidding, you know, kidding a probe to. Uh, well, I'd be happy to go if they put me to anywhere in the solar system. I'd be very happy to go myself personally. Um, but of course, if if no people are allowed, then um, I think 
the community as a whole really wants to go see Uranus and Neptune since we've only gotten to fly by those with the Voyager spacecrafts and we haven't been back. Um, I, I've always kind of really liked the Jupiter system. So I think going to Io would be super cool and seeing like all these lava volcanoes and everything, uh, sulfur volcanoes, I mean, and, um, yeah, I mean, we're at Jupiter right now too, but that, uh, with the Juno spacecraft, it's currently orbiting Jupiter, but yeah, I'm, I like, I like all the moons. I think the moons are fun places and so far they kind of ended up being the most interesting because you have Europa, which might have this water ocean and maybe, you know, po the possibility of microbial life underneath Enceladus turns out it had this water ice. Uh, I mean this water liquid water underneath its shell and then Titan around Saturn is also a super cool world with like this methane la lakes and methane rain and cloud system. That's kind of similar to earth's, but all with methane instead of, uh, instead of water. So there, I don't know, all the moons turned out to be super cool. So I think any, any moon in the solar system we want to check out is going to be fun. Even ours. We should go back to ours. Too. <laughs> no, that one's, that one's a little <laughs> bit closer. We might be able to get you to that one. Yeah. Let's do it. Just put you on the list for Elon Musk's little, you know, civilization on on the moon, right? Yeah. Tell me about your outreach stuff and, and sort of how that fits into your world and, and why you think it's important. On the outreach side of things, I personally just really enjoy it because I love – working with people. As I said earlier, I kind of sit at a computer all day. So it's nice to interact with other humans first, first off. Um, but secondly, it's, it's nice to just work with people because I've just found that people generally are super interested in what I do, which makes me more excited about what I do. And they, and it's just, it's cool to connect with people that way. Like everyone kind of has that question of, where, you know, how did we get here? How did, you know, maybe it's more of a philosophical or maybe it's more of a spiritual question, but in some kind of sense, it's always that question of how did, how did this all start? How did this all form? And I'm kind of on the scientific side of that, trying to figure out, you know, planet formation and um, how our solar system came to be. But I think just working with people in general is, is fun and exciting, but it's also super important. I think that communicating science and how science is done is really important because I think people think that scientists sometimes are just these people that feel like they're know-it-alls or whatever. And, you know, it's a, it's a long process. We don't just say like, oh, it's that way because it is. I think, I think it's cool for people to see who scientists are, that they're just people also, that they look like them and, um, and can, and they can be scientists too. And, and I think that, um, just so that kind of education and, and showing people what who scientists are, what they look like, that they're not all just like that old man in a white lab coat with frizzy hair and glasses. I think that's an important part of what we do. And um, I'm working right now, which is super cool with this program. It's called uh, NASA Survey. So it's a solar system exploration virtual institute, I, research institute. I don't know. There's a lot of letters in that. But um, one of the things that we're working on it, through the outreach program is um, basically making this whole curriculum based on asteroids for all the students to learn a lot about asteroids on a hands-on engineering and science uh, project that also incorporates art that will extend their so like their their social studies classes, their art classes, their math classes, and bring everything kind of all into one interdisciplinary thing. And you can you know you can touch people in ways that uh, you don't realize. Um, by doing some of the education and outreach stuff. So it's it's a lot of fun. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this was really fascinating. Thank you for having me. 
hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts. Thank you.